Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time, it's a return visit for one of the show's longest-running repeat guests, Professor Tim Bale, because Tim has another book out, this time called The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation. And I don't know if that subheading is a reference to the Conservative Party or trying to write a book, Tim, while so many prime ministers were changing. But welcome back to the show, Tim. Thank you very much, Mark. I think it's probably a bit of both in answer to that question. I thought we might start with a slightly existential question of just what's the point of your book? Not not to, as it were, be too rude about it, because it's actually a really good book, really recommend to people. But I can imagine lots of listeners to this podcast do things like regularly read Tim Shipman's column. So if if you follow the news closely, there's a whole set of, of knowledge about events that you get. And likewise, there's clearly some advantage in writing quite a few years after events when there's been more time to do research, when indeed when we've seen what the final act of the play is, when we know how Rishi Sunak's political career ends, that take a bit of time and distance. But your book sort of falls in between the two. It, it, it doesn't come out as quickly as the Tim Shipman book, and it's come out a lot more quickly than a standard academic book, for example, would do. So what, what's the point? What were you trying to achieve with it? Well, I guess, you know, there are strengths in some ways of both those genre, aren't there? I mean, Tim Shipman's style and, you know, it's one we've seen also from Sebastian Payne, for example, or we've seen from James Heal of The Spectator and Harry Cole, who wrote about Liz Truss. You know, you get a, a very strong sense of, you know, what's going on day to day, what the individual actors to whom they've got great access are thinking and saying. And, you know, it, it can give you the feel sometimes anyway that you're in the room, as it were. And then on the other hand, you've got the academic stuff, which, you know, purports anyway to look at more profound cause and effect, if you like, and to some extent downplays perhaps the, the influence of, of, of agency in favour of, of structure, if you like. And I guess what I always try to do is to get at the interaction between the two things. So without, you know, getting lost, you know, too far into the weeds, you know, and, and being able hopefully still to, if you like, see the wood for the trees, give people a sense of, you know, what really does motivate politicians to do what they do and, and, and say what they say at the same time as giving you, if you like, a kind of 360 degree view of the Conservative Party, because in the end, that's what my book is about, the Conservative Party at all levels. So not just the elite, which is often the focus of, of Tim's books, but also the voters and the, the members and, and the activists. So I hope without falling, as it were, between the two stools, I try and get some of the strengths of both of those genres at the same time. And I, I don't know if this was deliberate in your decision to write the book, but it strikes me that that approach works really well for this period of time, because particularly understanding the perspectives and the views of ordinary party members, which is you know, very much one of your areas of specialism, is really useful when you're writing about an air, a period which had so many leadership elections or possible elections, where you know, where, which is the moment when party members probably have their their greatest power. Yeah, so I think that is a really important point. And you also have to look even at a particular subject like Brexit, for example, where there is this interaction between, on the one hand, you know, the kind of people I refer to as celebrity politicians like Rhys Mogg and, and Boris Johnson on the one hand, and the members of the Conservative Party on the other. And, and the fact that those celebrity politicians, I think, probably have pushed the Conservative membership in a more Eurosceptic direction. You know, we, we don't see this big influx from UKIP that some people suppose then has an influence on MPs because, you know, they're having to cope with the feeling in their constituency party. And it has a longer term influence as well, because obviously it makes it more and more difficult for anybody who doesn't share those views to get selected. So you kind of get a generational or kind of cohort effect on parliament. So there's a, there's a kind of self-reinforcing logic, if you like, about Brexit, but also about the relationship between, on the one hand, the elite of the party, and on the other hand, the, the grassroots of the party. And in that sense, I think there's a sort of shadow that of his cast over events by David Cameron's time as Conservative leader. But in particular, this, which I've sort of talked about on this podcast before, this interesting conundrum that he talked about wanting to stop banging on about Europe all of the time and in a way tried to lead the Tory party in that way. 
but you can't really see any trace of that in what he did to the party's candidates process. So he changed the party's candidates process in quite fundamental ways. And if you look at the massively increased diversity in the senior ranks now of uh, on many measures, not on some measures, but on many measures, massively increased diversity in senior conservative ranks. An awful lot of that, you can point to David Cameron deciding this is something I want to alter. And I do wonder how different the Conservative Party's arc would have been if he had taken the approach that, say, Keir Starmer is taking, where Keir Starmer is even more hands-on, I think, in the, with changing how Labour Party selections operate, but with a very clear ideological you know, angle to it. Cameron was happy to really interfere in the candidate process, wanted to stop banging on about Europe, but didn't put the two and two together. So a lot of the, you know, the now leading Eurosceptics, Brexiteers, hard Brexiteers, are people who who came through that new process that Cameron set up. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point, actually. I mean, he was much more focused, as you say, on the demographics and on the optics, if you like, than on you know trying to create, if you like, a window into candidate souls and find out what they thought about and particular issues. Having said that, of course, I think you do have to take into account the fact that a lot of people who were elected under David Cameron, while they were Eurosceptic, certainly weren't leavers. Um, but only became leavers and sometimes very zealous leavers in the run-up to or after the the Brexit referendum, partly in response, obviously, to that vote, but partly in response, obviously, as I've already suggested, to their grassroots members who, you know, since that Brexit vote have moved in an incredibly Eurosceptic Brexity direction. And I think that raises that interesting question about which, in a way, is the aberration of the 2017 and 2019 elections, because I guess the both the advantage and the disadvantage of you writing the book now is we don't yet know what the next election will be. And I think it's it seems to me very likely that politics over the next 10 years will play out in a way that will mean either 2017 or 2019 will have looked like the aberration. You know, mm. that, that if Labour, say, fail to win the next general election, then 2017 will really look like the aberration and there'll be all sorts of reasons will apply for why it was the aberration. On the other hand, if Labour win, and in particular, I mean, when Labour don't win very many elections, but when they do, they then tend to have a run of success. And so if we end up with a series of Labour wins, then actually 2019 will probably look like the aberration. Now, obviously, the risk is that once we know what the next act of the play is like, that it all ends up seeming more inevitable than it was. So there's an advantage in a way, isn't there, of having to write without knowing which of those two. Or I guess we might have such tumultuous politics that actually it, there is so much sort of <laughs> veering back and forth that neither of the two seem the aberration. But I, 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 it's hard to imagine that we'll end up viewing those two elections equally. I think almost certainly one will feel like it was the odd one out, won't it? Yeah, I mean, possibly. But on the other hand, I suppose one could make the argument that in some ways 2019 was a logical extension of 2017 as far as the Conservatives were concerned. Because as you know, Mark, much of the good work, if you want to call it that, done in the red wall by the Conservative mm, Party in 2019 true. was to some extent you know, laid down by Theresa May, or at least the Conservative Party more generally, in, in 2017. So there's perhaps more connection there than, than one might think with the Conservative Party's effort. I mean, I, I think you're right clearly about the Labour Party. I, I guess what 2017 showed us is that there is still potential there for you know, a pretty strong Labour performance if the Conservatives themselves don't perform particularly well. I mean, I think what's interesting about the 2019 election, and I think people who suspect the Conservative Party is going to do very badly next time around forget, is that a lot of those constituencies that flipped to the Conservative Party in some ways should have flipped to the Conservative Party in 2017, mm. or perhaps even, even earlier than that. If you believe, you know, James Ganagasorium mm. and, you know, his analysis of the Red Wall, these were constituencies that really should have been Conservative for quite a long time, but for various historical reasons, and sort of hung on to that Labour identity. So it's going to be much more difficult than I think some people think for Labour to, as it were, flip those constituencies back, because they are not, as some people seem to imagine, sort of natural Labour strongholds. That, that isn't the case for many of those constituencies. And I guess the other thing that with 2017 and 2019 and 2024, I guess it will be, is again, once we know the outcome, it will be a lot easier to say, ah, oh, well, of course, these were the long-term trends that made this all inevitable, which gets to your point about this interplay between the long-term trends and the individual agency. And I guess I tend to, 
instinctively maybe this is a self-delusion it's necessary for me to have but to quite like the idea that there is individual agency and one of the reasons for that is that if you look at a lot of stuff that was written in say the 1970s about the decline of two-party politics and so on in the end the SDP and the alliance didn't succeed you know and and I think there's a decent argument in that in that sense that the structure set up the opportunity but the individual agency then failed to take it but I, so I was really struck in reading your book at one particular example what seemed to me of clear individual agency that I hadn't really thought about which is the power a prime minister has when they give their party conference speech in the autumn so you home in understandably on Theresa May's autumn 2016 party conference speech where she basically set out criteria for Brexit that were pretty hard Brexit really Critics, including myself, would say that they were actually inconsistent and it was incompatible. But I think even, you know, even fans would say that definitely it was a very clear version of Brexit that she set out. And actually party leader speeches at conference are perhaps along with choosing when to call the general election, probably the greatest examples of, in a post-fixed-term parliament act world, individual direct prime ministerial power, because you... You don't have a cabinet, you know, you have a cabinet meeting before the budget, even, you know, you have, you know, the chancellor has some say in the budget. How much or, or not anyone other than the prime minister themselves is involved in writing that speech is purely up to the prime minister. There's no vote in parliament the day after on the speech, you know, and it, it, it and so am I sort of hunting too desperately for evidence of individual agency to delude myself that an individual being active in politics is worthwhile? Or do you think that actually both that speech in particular and maybe party leader speeches more generally are actually a really important part of the story? No, I mean, I think you're right. I think that speech in particular clearly had momentous consequences because at that point we didn't know exactly what Theresa May, who after all was a Remainer, albeit a reluctant one, was going to do on Brexit. And as you say, I mean, it set out essentially what used to be called, I mean, it's a movable feast, that term, a hard Brexit. You know, it was it was pretty obvious then that we were going to leave the single market and we were going to, in all probability, leave the customs union as well. And as you say, that was done with no consultation really with her cabinet colleagues to the point where, as I point out in the book, Philip Hammond, the chancellor, was sitting there absolutely horrified at what he was hearing, but, you know, doing his absolute best not to indicate that to the TV cameras that were on him. No, I mean, I, I think you're right to say that that and the, the calling of a general election, you know, now that that's possible, are, are probably the, the kind of peaks of prime ministerial power. Now, of course, simply because prime minister makes a statement at conference, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can deliver <laughs> on that, as we have seen on many occasions. So, but, but I mean, with regard to kind of setting the agenda, I, I think that was incredibly important. And then, of course, you have to go into, well, who actually wrote that speech? You know, was was that Theresa May or was that Nick Timothy and, you know, others who might have been involved? And I think one of Theresa May's problems, and it's something that will be said about her, I guess, forever, really, is that she didn't necessarily have very strong views of her own on, on that particular issue or indeed across a range of issues. So there was, to some extent, a vacuum there, which her advisors were were able to to fill. So even when we're talking about individual agency, I guess we're talking about the agency of, you know, several individuals sometimes and and, and not just one. Yeah, I mean, I, I still find I don't really know what to make of Theresa May because she seems a, a really intriguing mix of different sort of personality traits or political traits. Perhaps. Partly, I think, just because the fact that she has got on with still being an MP and seems to be, you know, quite diligent at doing that role, popping up just frequently enough on sort of big national issues to feel like she's still committed to the role, but not so frequently that, you know, bad backseat driving. You know, in a way, the way she's carried that on with her political career and the way she's sort of deported herself since being ousted in quite a brutal fashion does her huge credit I think compared to I mean that unbelievably ungracious departing speech from Boris Johnson for example or or Liz Truss's you know very perfunctory so so there are there are definitely bits of how she has behaved which I you know I think are admirable and one might say are quite moderate in a way of you know reaching out to a broader audience but then there are things like that speech there is I mean her record as home secretary again is interestingly mixed I mean 
a whole load of quite hardline stuff on immigration and so on. But on the other hand, she was in her own way, you know, fairly, fairly quietly, but fairly supportive of legalization of same sex marriage. It, it, it's, you know, you, you, I, if she'd been prime minister for longer, I think she would have probably spawned a whole load of really interesting biographies. Yeah, and, and she was also, you know, very deeply involved in the Modern Slavery Act as well. So, you know, there, mm. there are kind of, uh, if you like, liberal and progressive sides to, to her personality. I mean, it's very difficult, obviously, when, when we're talking about Theresa May's time as, as prime minister, simply because, you know, it became very evident from the point at which she lost that 2017 election that her days were numbered and that everything she did, really, from that point on, was seen not just through the lens of Brexit, but seen through the lens of who was going to replace her as Conservative Party Prime Minister. And clearly there were, you know, a whole bunch of people, and particularly obviously in the ERG, who neither, you know, had any respect for her, you know, version of Brexit, which was, although we would say quite hard, softer than they would have liked, nor any respect for her as a and as, as an election winner. And particularly when they believed that they had, you know, the, the ace in, in the hole of, of Boris Johnson. So, you know, I, to some extent, like many people actually in her party, even those who grew very frustrated with her, have a degree of, you know, sympathy, if not respect, <laughs> for the way that she handled herself. I mean, I guess one thing that you could say about Theresa May, though, in, you know, more negatively, was that she she simply wasn't capable of, of reaching across the aisle, to use that American phrase, at a point, you know, where she might have been able to save, you know, a kind of softer Brexit deal. But because she's quite a tribal conservative, that just really didn't enter her her head or her, her imagination. And as a result, I think, you know, she she tried to get Brexit through the parliament by getting it through the Conservative Party. And that was just never going to be possible, I think. Yeah, I, I guess the other thing that that sort of prompts is that is is the question about what do we look for in terms of, say, a, you know, a political history? Because I think your book, understandably, your professor of politics, focuses very much on the politics rather than the policy. And so in a way, it's not surprising that it focuses a lot on the internal Conservative Party politics over Brexit rather than the sort of, say, a public administration perspective of well, what are the different sort of customs arrangements that you might have? What are the different sorts of customs checks that one might have on the border and so on? But I think that reflects not just the fact that it's a you know politics book written by a professor of politics, but also that politics really dominated over policy in a way that I'm struck that books by other poli- you know politics professors that are political books about say Tony Blair in government and talking about the public services there. There's an awful lot more in those about all of the different things the Blair government tried to improve public services and to get better value for money. And, you know, you're you're learning about, in that sense, how the NHS works, as well as about the history of the Labour government. In a way, you know, and this isn't a criticism anyway, I think it's a reflection of the times, reading your book tells you a lot about the times, a lot about how the Conservative Party works, but you don't really learn about the mechanics of customs union in a way that equivalent books about you know, the new Labour era would, would, would tell you yeah. about how the NHS works. Do you, but, do you feel that's a, that's a fair sort of contrast? Oh, I mean, I think that's, that's completely <clears> fair. <throat> I mean, one of the reasons, obviously, is because this is a book in the end about the Conservative Party. The other reason mm. is that um, Brexit basically you know, blotted out the sun mm. in some ways. And, you know, it'd be very difficult to think. And I mean, I, I did try to think about, particularly obviously when it came to Theresa May's reign of, you know, the other things that she was doing or trying to do. But I mean, there was simply very, very little other than Brexit that she had the bandwidth to to do. And, and indeed, when she finally admitted defeat and that you know, she was going to go. There was a kind of scramble among her advisors to try and get some of the things that she wanted to do other than Brexit through. Some of them were actually kind of prevented by, ironically enough, Philip Hammond, <laughs> because he didn't want to commit money to projects when he knew that an alternative prime minister might not those projects to go ahead. But on the other hand, there was something significant, which is actually the net zero commitment. And mm. that did have a lot to do with Theresa May. So actually, in the long term, you could argue that Theresa May had a very big influence on Britain's in environmental policy. It's just one that's not generally appreciated because very few people remember that actually that was written into law because of Theresa May. Yeah, and indeed, the previous sort of generation of big moves on environmental policy in the Tories happened under Mrs Thatcher, didn't it? Yeah. There's an interesting 
book maybe maybe you should write at some point Tim about the Conservative Party and the environment you know if you were to say if you weren't to know which was the leader under which those two significant environmental yeah. moves had happened you probably wouldn't pick Thatcher and May would you you know you might pick Cameron and although he had the photo op I don't think one could really say his green policies were up to you know <laughs> even what say happened under Mrs Thatcher and you know you, you'd probably pick different figures from those two wouldn't you it's, anyway bif, 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 rather than digressing into the politics of Chris Patner's environment secretary uh before obviously he was beaten by the Lib Dems in the 1992 election <laughs> just thought you'd get that in yeah let's let's move on to Boris Johnson because I think the, the thing that your book reminded me of which I'd forgotten was the Tory and again it's an autumn conference thing was the Tory party slogan at the 2019 autumn conference wasn't just get Brexit done it was get Brexit done, invest in our NHS schools and police. And I think that was quite significant in terms of both that was deliberate about how Boris Johnson was approaching the, at least the politics of Brexit, but also quite significant in terms of understanding why voters were making the decisions they made in the 2019 election. That that second half of that slogan seems to me like almost a sort of forgotten bit of of what Boris Johnson at least said he was going to be about as prime minister. Yeah, I think that is really, really important. And it's something that came out actually in the research that we did for the, the British general election of 2019 book with, with Rob Ford and, and Will Jennings and Paula Surrey. It was a very conscious part of the Conservatives' campaign to insist to people that, that, that the only point in some ways of getting Brexit done, or at least one of the very big points about getting Brexit done, was to enable the government to get on with most people's priorities. And that was an attempt to, I guess, match the demands that were coming out of focus groups and out of polling run up to that general election from people which was you know even if they weren't madly convinced Brexiteers they just wanted the whole thing over in order to be able to do something about what they saw as the kind of crumbling state of public services and in particular as you say schools and hospitals and police the kind of holy trinity if you like of of uh, public services as far as elections are concerned and I think one of the problems that Boris Johnson had and indeed the Conservative Party um, still has is that it has really failed to do very much to honour that promise and you know an allied promise obviously to level up society there's not really been much tangible progress on any of those issues perhaps with a with a, a slight qualification when it comes to policing because they do at least seem to be making progress towards replacing the number of police that were lost during <laughs> Theresa May's time as Home Secretary in a period of austerity but apart from that, you know, it's, it's very obvious that that promise hasn't been hasn't been met. And I, and I suspect there are, you know, there, there are only an, you know, a limited numbers of times that you can make a promise before people realise that actually you're not particularly interested or not particularly capable of, of delivering on it. Yeah, I guess the other thing is that there's a risk for the Tories in that the upside of focusing on in fixing public services, as you say, I think, helped fit the public mood then and indeed now about state of public services and what people want it also allowed Boris Johnson to present himself as a figure of change rather than continuity though so, you know if, if you don't like what happened in the past we'll vote for change with Boris Johnson as opposed to vote for change by getting out of power the party that's provided the prime minister since 2010 I guess perhaps there's a risk though for the Tories wrapped up in that a bit like what the dilemma Ed Miliband faced after, you know, when he was Labour leader, which is that if you basically go along with criticism of your predecessor's record, you're almost making the other side's case easier. Now, obviously, in the 2019 election, you know, Boris Johnson got, you know, got away with it and got away with it, as it were, you know, spectacular success in terms of winning the election with a with a big majority. But I wonder if some of the Tory political travail since have almost been worsened by the fact that even the Conservatives are going round saying, yeah, things are a mess. And, and they're sort of partly doing Labour and the Lib Dems and so on's jobs for us. Yeah, I mean, there was a very interesting piece recently in the New Statesman by Anoush Chakalian about Conservatives beginning to kind of apologise almost for austerity, <laughs> beginning to say, well, perhaps he went a little bit too far on that. Michael Gove in particular has, has suggested that. On, on housing, uh, for example. Mm. And I think you're right, there is a, a danger really in admitting the opposition's case. 
I also think you are very spot on, really, about you know the, the purpose of, of that second half of the Brexit promise, if you like, for Boris Johnson. It did allow him to present himself as a change candidate, if you like, as well as someone who was you know, going to, to sort this particular problem out. And it also allowed Boris Johnson, obviously, to present himself as a kind of one nation Tory, which was the, <laughs> the, the, the moniker that he adopted at the time without actually very much evidence that he was anything of the kind. You know, I think Boris Johnson is basically, in as much as he has any kind of ideology, a kind of bog standard Thatcherite. I mean, he wants to keep taxes low, wants to keep spending under control, you know, and isn't particularly interested in any kind of, you know, huge transformation of any of those public services, either through structural reform or indeed, you know, by spending more money on them. Yeah, so talking about spending money, one of the other sort of, and, and you only mention it in passing and then immediately throw the reader to a footnote, which has a very long Twitter URL to type into, which is about, maybe one should call it grants given to the media, to the yeah. new, newspapers during COVID lockdown, where you have this brief reference to essentially, you know, the government helping shore up its reputation with friendly newspapers by being fairly generous with government grants to help support the newspaper industry. But the, the, this all was fairly low key and mostly sort of didn't get, get much public scrutiny. So yeah, tell me more about about this intriguing reference? Well, it comes from Dominic Cummings. And and Dominic Cummings, of course, is famous for many things with regard to Boris Johnson. But one of the things he says about Boris Johnson's is that during one conversation, Boris Johnson referred to the Telegraph as his real boss. And I think Dominic Cummings is fairly convinced, and he makes a reasonable case for this, that the government really did help out not just its own friends, if you like, in the media, but the newspaper industry more generally, in a way that wasn't given much publicity, given that it was obviously the newspapers who might otherwise have publicised it, by giving them kind of, in effect, kind of hardship grants to make up for their losses during uh, COVID. Now, I don't think there's anything, you know, particularly conspiratorial about that. I mean, I'm not sure if Dominic Cummings does either. But I mean, I think it does, once again, that, you know, governments, generally speaking, will dole out money uh, to people who they feel, you know, will act in their interest or might act in their interest and, and not actually tell the public, you know, too much about it. But I mean, in terms of the money given out to various businesses, sometimes fraudulently, as we've since found out, I guess that's a, a drop in the ocean, but quite indicative, perhaps, of the, the, the close relationship uh, that the Conservative Party has with the media. And that's something we could we could perhaps talk about. Mm. Uh, but I mean, I think the other thing I would say, just while we're on COVID, is that although the, the title of the book is the Conservative Party after Brexit, actually COVID plays a really, really big part in this story. Um, I think what, what's been very interesting for me after doing a few interviews about the book is how much people, and this isn't a criticism of them, want to talk about Brexit and the impact of Brexit on the Conservative Party and, and the role of Brexit in this story and how little actually people want to focus on COVID. And I think that's indicative in some ways of, of a wider desire on the part of all, us, all of us to sort of move on from that and forget about that. Whereas, you know, one can argue that <laughs> it, it had just as much uh, of an impact on British politics and perhaps will continue to do so as, as, as Brexit has. And yet, you know, it's not something, generally speaking, that people want to talk about very much nowadays. Although I wonder if part of that is a sense of that nobody quite knew what they were doing. But I think one could say that about both Brexit and COVID. But in the case of COVID, that's easier to justify and to explain away. But, you know, our, our knowledge of the science of COVID has yeah. evolved enormously. I was the other day digging back through some minutes of previous Liberal Democrat federal board meetings to try and find some information. And so I happened to reread the minutes of our and the paperwork around our special board meeting at which we cancelled our spring 2020 conference because of COVID. And this was just ahead of the government sort of closing down all such events. So we had some discretion. We made the decision to, to cancel it, which was a bit controversial in the immediate aftermath, but very rapidly people you know recognized it was the right decision to make but looking back at the sorts of things we were talking about then really striking how limited and in some ways misleading you know the scientific knowledge at the time was so lots of stuff about hand sanitizers 
almost nothing about air conditioning, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a bit of, although I definitely think the government messed up and they got things wrong in a way that a more competent government wouldn't have got wrong. I guess there is also a bit, particularly for members of the public who don't follow politics that closely, a bit of a sense of, you know, and, and this certainly comes through very strongly in things like the Times focus groups, you know, at the time, was a sense of, yeah, the government's, you know, trying hard and it's all complicated and everyone's finding it difficult in a way that with Brexit, one can more easily point the finger of blame at things. Yeah, I think I think that's right. But I think if you're looking at the Conservative Party in particular, COVID exposed all sorts of divisions mm. on an ideological level, as well as on a, the level of kind of personal ambition that, that are worth remembering and are worth talking about. And in particular, I think because we now have Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, they are very interesting because it was clear that Rishi Sunak was pushing Boris Johnson and sometimes pushing against an open door, as it were, to open up earlier than perhaps, you know, science would have suggested was a, a good idea on, on more than one occasion, actually. And it is no exaggeration to say that, you know, the government did get it wrong on a, on a couple of occasions and probably ended up with a, a death toll far higher than it needed to be simply because, you know, there was this belief among, if you like, free marketeers in the Conservative Party that towns were per se a bad idea and should be abandoned as soon as possible. Also, because obviously there was a concern about, you know, the, the effects it was having on business. And, you know, once again, you can see also the role of what I call the party in the media here, because they were very much behind and pushing all the time for lockdowns, as they call them, to be lifted and for things to go further and faster than the best advice was at the time. And in fact, not just at the time. I mean, I, I don't think there are many scientists who would resile from the conviction that they had at the time that although lockdowns, for want of a better word, you know, weren't <laughs> something anybody wanted to do, probably were necessary to prevent the, the spread of infection, an infection mm -hmm. which at the time we couldn't do very much about. Yeah. And so before we just come on to Rishi Sunak's views, just backtracking slightly to that phrase, the party in the media, which you use quite regularly through the book, it had the feel to me, I don't know if I'm wrong about this, of being, I mean, in a way, a very understandable phrase, but probably a phrase with quite a lot of political sort of theory as it were behind it so I wondered if you just wanted to unpack what, what yeah, you mean yeah. by that well I mean as political scientists who are interested in political parties we're, we're very used to anatomizing the the party in in three ways we we talk about the the party on the ground which is you know the the membership the grassroots activists etc we talk about the party in central office which would be you know staffers hq people like you mark actually <laughs> in some ways and also we talk about the party in public office which are the mps yeah. the, the elected officials now I don't think you can really understand the Conservative Party, at least. It might not be true for all political parties, but certainly the Conservative Party, without understanding that there is another component which should be added to this. So there aren't just three parts of the party that we should consider when we're anatomising it, but there is a fourth part, a fourth estate, if you like. Later. Yes. <laughs> not just for the well, coming back to structure and agency there, yeah. but, you know, which is this thing I call the party in the media, which mm. is this collection of people who, whether they be proprietors, editors, op-ed writers, leader writers, columnists or whatever, continually engage in a conversation which I think has a great deal of influence on the leadership mm. of the Conservative Party and which also has a great deal of influence on Conservative MPs and, and activists and there is if you like a kind of feedback mechanism going on there because obviously Conservative MPs are to some extent themselves part of the party in the media it's perfectly possible now for an MP to gain a very rapid rise and reputation by appearing in the media and it's not just the print media now obviously you know we have more and more outlets gb news i would say was you know quite an important one within the conservative party now but we also have influential websites like conservative home we have news magazines like the spectator which also have websites and and really to understand the conservative milieu you have to understand that what i call the party in the media is an integral part of the Conservative Party. It's not just a sort of a bolt on, or it's not just a, a bunch of people who support the Conservative Party from the outside. They are very much helping to set the agenda and carry on a discussion and act as a pressure group within the party itself. And I guess Boris Johnson, when he was Russell's correspondent, the Telegraph would have been part of that. And yeah, people yeah. often 
point to that, those years of very well written, very entertaining to read, but maybe not always quite factually accurate <laughs> columns from him about yeah, Europe yeah. as being a, an important part of shaping the environment. In the yeah, and I mean, the, in the, the interaction is, is interesting as well when we're looking at, you know, Theresa May's period in, in, in the premiership, because once Boris Johnson resigns, he goes back to being, in some ways, not just an MP, but also an incredibly highly paid columnist for the Daily Telegraph. Mm. And you see the Daily Telegraph uh, really quite consistently pushing Boris Johnson as the, you know, the next obvious leader of the Conservative Party, you know, hoping that Theresa May will in some ways make way for him. It's not well, just all, all good employers help their former employees <laughs> find new jobs, you know, surely. <laughs> well, some of that, but obviously it's not limited to the Telegraph. I mean, obviously the the, the Mail and the Express and, and the Sun. Well, the uh, Mail, I find it... it at the moment, is the most interesting in that respect, because I think there is a good argument, which in fact I talk about a little bit in my much inferior to yours book, Bad News, about how it's it's not so much the political leaning of the owners of the newspaper determines the editorial line, but rather the editorial line is determined by who the audience is the newspaper is trying to appeal to. Mm. And so if you're a rich right winger, you buy a right wing newspaper. If you're a rich left winger, you buy a left wing newspaper. And it, it because you know that the newspaper is going to have to take a particular line to appeal to the audience that it's it's established. So so the, the political influence comes with the sorting of the mm. who owns which newspaper. Mm. But there is obviously some influence nonetheless that one can have on the editorial line, particularly if you're picking between factions within a party. And what what I find striking about the Daily Mail at the moment in the you know, sort of spring 21 is they quite often run front pages that do seem to be out of tune with what lots of their readers might be thinking, judging by, you know, the polls. And they they do seem to be deliberately trying to push opinion in that sense, more so perhaps than, you know, when at, say, the height of Boris Johnson's popularity, they were acting as a cheerleader in a way for him. They were probably also just mirroring what that many of their readers thought anyway. But it feels like at the moment they're in a slightly different situation. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I mean, the mail is also interesting, obviously, because as you'll remember, there, there was a a change of editorship where mm. Paul Dacre gets replaced by Geordie Gregg, who, you know, was originally a Remainer and and therefore, you know, rather less inclined, I think, to, you know, support everything that the Conservative government was doing. But in the end, he gets replaced. <laughs> He's now, I think, editor of The Independent, yeah. you know, which is obviously a very, very different newspaper. So, you know, it, it it's, I think there, there's a limit to which people uh, on the mail can, can change the way that, you know, that, that paper sees things. But I, I think there's there's definitely, you know, a, a case to be made for those newspapers making a very big difference to the internal politics of the Conservative Party. And I would say, and you know a lot more about the you know, media influence on, on voters than I do, Mark, is that, you know, very often, probably for the last 30 years, ever since The Sun, you know, made that claim 30, 40 years ago about, you know, 1992 election, people have become obsessed about newspapers influence on on voters and and to be honest i just don't think that's where it's at newspapers influence is actually on on the the parties themselves but strangely enough they have so much influence because politicians continue to believe that they have an influence on voters yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean there's a whole thing about the legacy you, you know of newspaper influence that has mm. continued even as the sort of substance in a way has I, I, it always amuses, baffles, frustrates me that on the rolling TV news, you will get the following day's newspaper front pages reviewed. But actually, you can look at all of the newspapers, you know, online easily enough. What you don't get, which would be massively more useful, is for newspapers in the morning to do a review of the previous night's TV bulletins. Because <laughs> actually... You know, I, 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 I can find out easily enough, partly through really good early morning emails that 1001 media institutions do, mm. what all the media front pages were, newspaper mm. front pages are of a morning. Mm. What actually was Channel 4 News's lead story versus the BBC's versus ITV? And also, I think there is a fair amount of variety. You know, there is... But but we're in the, that we're still locked into that legacy mindset. But we could talk about that forever. Let's just come on briefly before we wrap up to Rishi Sunak because I think, like with Theresa May, I think he comes out of your book as a complicated character. And as you touched on earlier in your comments about his time as Chancellor, in some ways, although his current persona is of the competent technocrat 
to which one often instinctively when talking about people sort of apply words like moderate or whatever actually is quite a sort of hardline free marketeer although ironically perhaps the biggest sort of symbol of that as chancellor was him really pushing against lockdown which sort of fits with sort of traditional right-wing perspectives in many ways but doing so by doling out large amounts of dosh through eat out to help out so some you know for for all his professed belief in the free market he actually what you know d- decided to deliberately distort the out of home dining market by offering huge cash incentives but i think that there is a certain intellectual consistency there definitely mm-hmm. which is that he's quite a right the again you know reading your book reminded me of the sorts of comments he made attacking as he called it woke culture during the tory leadership election which again seemed to me to go beyond the this is what you say because you're having to tap to appeal to the members that there, he's quite a right wing character yeah he's not a notting hill david cameron type he's not a george osborne even type conservative really that george osborne you know very sort of traditionally right-wing views on the economy and the deficit and so on but with actually quite a strong social liberal streak on a range of issues you know at, at the equivalent of arguments over woke culture wars you know during during george osborne's pomp actually he was quite often on the side of 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 being socially permissive and and reform and so on. I, I can't remember off the top of my head which way he voted on, say, same-sex adoption, but he certainly wasn't an out-and-out opponent, for example, of legalising same-sex marriage, was he? That, but Sunak, Sunak, in that sense, just seems to be a more straightforwardly right-wing across-the-board character. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the comparison with George Osborne does bear some thinking about because Mm. I I think like Cameron, Osborne presented himself as a moderniser and therefore many people confuse that with also being a centrist, if you like, on on economic policy. But I I do agree. I mean, I think there was an essential social liberalism about George Osborne and indeed David Cameron that isn't reflected in in Rishi Sunak. Now, I'm not saying that Rishi Sunak is, is, you know, Suella Braverman in a suit. I mean, I do think, you know, there is a difference between them. But I do think he believes some of the stuff he he says when he's talking about woke. And I don't think you would have got George Osborne or David Cameron to promote Suella Braverman as, as Home Secretary. Or, or indeed, it, it reminds me of how in the early days of David Cameron's leadership, the Tories did things like target mail to sort of try to win votes from the Lib Dems, where Cameron called himself a liberal conservative. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was... If, if you sort of contrast, you know, that was not really followed through with in many ways in terms of how Cameron was then prime minister. But if you contrast that with, say, uh, you know, Sunak's rhetoric about about having a go at woke culture, those are two very, very different. I, I yeah, can't they imagine. are. And I, yeah. I mean, I think Rishi Sunak has, you know, or is attempting anyway to pull off the trick of, of saying to people, well, you know, I was a chancellor under Boris Johnson. Um, I was looking after the money. I didn't have very much to do with all this other sort of populist stuff. You know, actually, you know, I represent a a kind of break from all that on the one hand. But on the other, he's also (laughs) making a pitch to those so-called red war voters, which is entirely in line with the kind of populist stuff that Boris Johnson was getting up to. And in fact, he's going even further on that when it comes to some of the stuff that Suella Braverman is is suggesting so i i I do think you're you're quite right to say he is you know actually quite a a kind of right-wing populist figure as well as a a a thatcherite and the transformation obviously i'm talking about when it comes to the conservative party more generally in the title is this transformation from a kind of mainstream center-right party into what you know i would call an ersatz populist radical right party and I guess the question is whether that represents, you know, yet another example of the Conservatives' ability to adapt, which we will then see um, change, you know, back over time. So the Conservative Party moves towards a more radical right position, but then perhaps it moves back to a more centrist kind of mainstream position on on issues of of culture war, or whether it represents, you know, a road down which the Conservative Party is now kind of destined to travel and, you know, might actually be a dead end for the party, given the extent to which the UK is becoming more multi-ethnic, more liberal, you know, and generally probably not actually that receptive to that kind of anti-woke politics. And I I think what, what will be interesting is if 
the Conservative Party manages to pull off a, a win at the next election, will we see the Conservative Party, you know, travel back towards that kind of centre-right mainstream? Or because it's enabled it to win that, you know, next election victory, actually double down on some of that anti-woke stuff and go even further? In which case, you might have a Conservative Party that looks even more like that, that ersatz radical right party than it does now. But if a Conservative Party loses the election, I suspect that we'll also see that doubling down because, you know, I can't see Rishi Sunak sticking around. And then I would have thought that the most likely leadership contenders there will be someone like Braverman and Badenoch, both of whom are real culture warriors. So, you know, in my view, I think that transformation that I'm talking about, although it can be questioned, it can be interrogated, looks to me like it may be, you know, if not a permanent, at least a long term feature of conservative politics in this country for some time to come. Yeah, although, of course, the, the then, you know, act beyond that may be a bit like with William Hague and Ian Duncan Smith failing is is eventually, you know, they get another David Cameron figure who tries to pitch the back more to the centre in some ways. But so one just final question about Sunak before we wrap up, because in the story, as you've just told it, Sunak is in a way a logical extension of Boris Johnson. Mm. But when Sunak quit as from the government and helped you know, precipitate Johnson's fall, he was very clear in emphasising or claiming publicly that he was quitting for policy reasons. And I, I always, and you, you cover this in the book, and it's, it's an interesting emphasis because he had basically two reasons he could have given. One was about horrendous mismanagement of a case of alleged sexual harassment. And one was about policy differences. And I think it's it, it's sort of largely unexplored and unexplained, you know, in political commentary in general. Why did he not go for the outraged by our failure to take sexual harassment seriously? We need that to me, seems like that would have been the very straightforwardly safe political route. You know, if you've got a difficult question to ask things about why were you horrible to Boris Johnson, you know, that's the, well, look, because I want to be able to say to, you know, every woman in this room, you know, with an absolute, look them in the eye with an absolutely straight face that sexual harassment by powerful men in power is completely unsafe. That That just gives you such safe ground. And yet he didn't choose that. You know, he chose to say it was about policy. Why do you think what was why did he decide to make it about policy? Given that everything that we've seen since is that in a way he's extending the Boris Johnson policy approach rather than trying to take go off in a different direction. Well, because simply I think he was afraid that any kind of criticism on a personal level of the way that Boris Johnson handled that and, and other scandals would have led the membership and indeed some of the, you know Boris Johnson's fans in the party and the media not to give him a fair hearing during the leadership contest. And after all, the only you know the reason he resigned was because he felt that you know he he had to distance himself from Boris Johnson and indeed Boris Johnson had to go in, you know for that leadership contest to take place and for for him to win it. And, and I think almost everything Boris sorry Sunak did and I think everything Liz Truss did really for a year or two before Boris Johnson finally went was dictated in part by their their leadership ambitions and one thing we know about the Conservative Party is that you know leadership ambitions and this comes back to your points about you know structure and agency are an incredibly important explanatory variable when analysing everything that the Conservative Party says or, or does and you know it's not for nothing and you know this quote probably as well as I do, that John Ramsden, the historian of the Conservative Party, once said it was an autocracy tempered by assassination, and it continues to be that. Yeah, although I guess that's the other thing that I find fascinating at the end of the book is, and I think your books, I find, are really good at sort of painting a broader picture as well, is if you didn't know it beforehand, you know, like you maybe say from an, another country and, you know, not that familiar with British politics, and you'd read, you know, your book, I'm not sure you would guess that the Tories are this remarkable election winning, winning two out of three general elections machine. You know, it doesn't feel like it's that sort of story in a way that I think many of the accounts of, say, the rise of new Labour about Labour in the 80s and the 90s are all about essentially trying to get good at winning elections. And so if you, you know, read one of those, you might think, oh, well, yeah, Labour is the party that's normally good at winning elections and they had this bad period and therefore, you know, this... It, 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 it's remarkable how when you you sort of, you know, lift the stone and look at what's underneath this, you know, winning two out of three general elections consistently mm. decade after decade. Mm. 
it seems a remarkably ramshackle affair. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree with that. But I guess we would then come back to the inbuilt advantages that the Conservative Party does have in, in, in the UK, and in particular in England. You know, it is this force for English nationalism, and that can't be ignored. It does have huge amounts of support, you know, from, from the media, not just the print media, but the way that the print media, to some extent, set the agenda of the broadcast media, which is much more important for, for most voters. And then, and, and this, you know, is not a dig at the Liberal Democrats at all. You'd have to look at, you know, some of the, the failings and the flaws of, the, you know, the parties in, in opposition and, and point to, um, you know, the, the way that, you know, they also, to some extent, have helped the Conservative Party to, you know, what some people would regard as fairly undeserved victories in recent years. Yeah, obviously, I would throw in the importance of the electoral system very, you know, as probably sort of what maybe even top of the list in terms of, you know, because if you've got a first past the post electoral system, you're, you know, you're almost certainly going to have at most two parties that are regularly winning elections. And you don't require that much of an imbalance in other underlying long term factors for it to be one party that dominates, I would guess. Although I ha- I'm sure there is evidence about, you know, actually how many parties win, how often under first past the post different systems around the world. But I, I'm, I'm guessing rather than having some s- statistics to pull on on that, yeah. so which is probably a good point at which to wrap up when I'm uh, veering into wild speculation. But I guess just finally, because I know you've quite reasonably done quite a lot of interviews about your book, Tim, because it's a really good book and you're a really good person to talk to, as hopefully listeners will agree, having having been listening to you. It, it, what What's the sort of the, the best question or the most interesting answer you feel you've given to other people that I fail to cover today? Is there some gem that other interviews have pulled out that you want to you want to leave people with? Um, actually, no, I'd say probably your first question to me was the hardest question <laughs> I've been asked. <laughs> and no, I mean, you know, I suppose I would go back to to, to what I've said before in that I, I do think obviously Brexit has totally dominated this, yeah. but I don't want us to forget about COVID, partly because obviously it was such a traumatic experience for so many people, partly because coming back to your point about public policy, it was such a hugely important, you know, issue mm. for us, and and in fact, we'll you know continue to be so if we're to be rather more ready for a pandemic than we were last time around. So while I'm not kind of you know pleading for people to to talk less about Brexit and more about COVID, I I guess I I do want to stress that you know we we must not forget that, and we mustn't forget the way that the Conservative Party. I think and the Conservative government mishandled that particular issues with some fairly spectacular but terrible results. Yeah. On that important but sober note, thank you hugely for your time. Tim, I will include links to your book, The Conservative Party After Brexit, in the show notes. Listeners can find Tim on Twitter at Prof Tim Bale and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.